Hello, listeners. Alex here. Today on the Weird Era podcast, I'm joined by Todd Babiak to discuss uh, his latest novel, The Spirits Up. Todd Babiak's recent novels are The Empress of Idaho, Son of France, and Come Barbarians, which was a Globe and Mail book of the year and a number one bestseller. His earlier work includes The Garneau Block, which was a national bestseller, a long-listed title for the Scotiabank Giller Prize, and winner of the City of Edmonton Book Prize. The Book of Stanley and Toby, A Man, which was shortlisted for the Stephen Leacock Medal and won the Alberta Book Award for Best Novel. Todd Babiak is the co-founder of Story Engine and CEO of Brand Tasmania. He currently lives with his family in Hobart. In the Spirits Up. Benedict is an inventor whose life's work is a clean energy machine. It has just made him an overnight sensation, and his family is suddenly wealthy. Benedict's wife, Karen, and his teenage daughters, Charlotte and Poppy, are proud of him. But there are problems Benedict is too busy to see. Karen is deeply unhappy in the marriage and contemplating an affair. Charlotte, who is dealing with a chronic illness, is growing more and more distant, and Poppy is cracking under the pressures of her social circle. And there's another problem. Benedict holds a rather terrible secret about his clean energy machine. Then, on Halloween night, an accident threatens to make everything far worse for the family. The accident kicks off a series of hauntings in their beautiful historic home in affluent Belgravia, and the ghosts make it clear they want something from them. Karen has to save her daughters and herself. Meanwhile, Benedict is consumed by the knowledge that he has to achieve the impossible by Christmas. As time ticks ever closer to the revelation of his secret, he spirals further into despair. Hi, Todd. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well read. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. (laughs) I want to start with the, uh, you know, quote unquote, obvious question that I'm sure comes up often when you're talking about the spirits up. But I want to talk about it anyways. Um, And it really is the fact that I don't know if this novel could exist outside of our current cultural contexts. Um, The pandemic informs so much of the story, climate panic, white privilege, you hit all of these subjects, and we're going to explore all of them. Uh, But starting with the pandemic, I've been waiting for fiction like this. Uh, This thing that changed all of our lives collectively was bound to bleed into literature at some point. Uh, We've seen it a lot in, or rather, I've seen it a lot in nonfiction already. But this is the first fiction piece that I've read that centers so heavily around what happened to the world in 2020. Um, Did you as a writer feel the need to explore your own feelings about the pandemic and how it affected us through writing about? it? Well, I suppose, Alex, um, my inspiration in some ways for the novel was A Christmas Carol. Mm -hmm. And if you look at what Dickens was living through uh, in the 19th century, it was a very current book. He was going out on the street, finding the the way people were feeling, looking at the social uh, problems, economic problems of the time. And he just put everything in there. And I suppose since I was inspired by that, I wanted this to be a contemporary novel. And as you say, all of my obsessions and fears and desires and <laughs> those that I think the community at large and, and the world we live in were sharing, I wanted to, to explore all of that, make problems out of them and be as honest as I could be about people trying to navigate through it. So, And then, you know, of course, trying to make a good story out of it. <laughs> 
so then I guess the further question, the next question would be, um, what does the Spirits Up look like without a raging pandemic behind it? Is it even possible for this story to exist otherwise? I think it is. I think it uh, it raises it raises the panic levels for, for everyone. Mm-hmm. It changes the rules for everyone, but they're still just human beings trying to, to navigate the, the regular problems. When you were reading... I was actually noticing when you read through the the blurb on what this book is about, it doesn't mention this at all. And I did actually try to put it in the background a little bit. It informs mm-hmm. everything. They have to follow these rules that a pandemic and what the pandemic will lead to have to, uh, we have to follow, I, I suppose, as human beings now. But I didn't want it to be about the pandemic in a sense. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what that's what we're all going to live with and what storytellers have to do at some point, we're probably going to feel a little bit sick of uh, hearing about this as as a thing in itself. Mm-hmm. It's more, all right, how do how do we flawed creatures make our way through it, uh, taking care of each other, navigating selfishness and nonsense, and and uh, anti-vax and social media and everything else that's kind of kind of killing us and making us complicated in uh, in a contemporary way. Yeah, and I mean, I asked the question because I obviously thought of it, of, of, you know, how does this story exist without all of these rules in place? And it really does inform so much of the character trajectories. Um, you know, the oil and coal business is going out. People who they've known for their adult lives, these two main characters, Karen and Benedict, um, are now out of jobs. The The oil industry is dying. The pandemic has ruined so much of the economy in Canada. Um, so I you, I was really just curious about, about that. How does this story look without all of these outside factors affecting it? Sure. Well, you're such a huge reader, Alex. You know this stuff, but problems are the engines of good stories and <laughs> this has just been this has just been two years of problems <laughs> and uh, problems. I, wa- <laughs> I suppose <laughs> I wanted to just you know throw it all in there and see how these four really different people try to navigate it mm-hmm. and you know your list was there but then we also have all these other social and cultural issues that you mm-hmm. mentioned in the very beginning so how do how do these how do these four people and then the other minor characters in, in the novel, how do they navigate all of this? Try to succeed. Try not to deeply, deeply fail. <laughs> I suppose that was that was the fun for me. And then setting it in maybe my favorite time in in North America, in Canada, was important. Uh, between Halloween and and Christmas, I'm living in a place. I'm living in the Southern Hemisphere where it's all opposite. We're we're in the mm. springtime now, and so I suppose I was feeling a little bit homesick and and nostalgic for. For that time, especially that, you know, the time in uh, the northern part of North America where we live. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, this is one of the things that I was going to ask also, you know, the fact that this novel takes place in the weeks and days after Halloween and before Christmas is not unimportant. Uh, You know, this period that we will currently be in when this episode goes live um, is, if not joyful, a high stress dictated by deadlines potentially traumatic for some people, emotionally distressing. And, you know, all of this is so heightened as we enter our second year of pandemic, or rather while we're in the middle of our second year of pandemic, um, where the supply chains are actually in super rough shape now, tensions are high. Um, So 
I guess the question there would actually be, do you enjoy the December holidays? Because the way the Spirits Up reads... Yeah, well, it's both. I I both love it and I find it distressing. And I think most people do. I think you summed it up beautifully that it is that that time where we're we're waiting for something wonderful. We're waiting to calm down. We're Mm. waiting to get whatever it is we we want or to give whatever it is we feel like we have to give, you know, sit down by the fire with a glass of something and Mm. and just relax into, into beauty and love. But it almost never happens. We get in the way of that throughout. And, you know, one of the things that I, I wanted to subtly and not so subtly explore is just the possibility of belief with a family like this, you know, these are secular humanists more or less. And, yeah. uh, and without it, with that void in our lives, without the consolation of belief that, that we've you know, had for thousands of years, actually, as mm. human beings, how do we navigate what is, what is artificial and what is true about a season like, like this? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I, found it, I found it a lot of fun to read about and explore, just as you're saying. I, I tried to make sure that there's that little line that one of those one of those writers who write about writing used uh, a carnival of relativity, uh, which is, I think, what a novel can be. Uh, there, there isn't really any solid answer, but uh, I think they're all seeking it. Mm-hmm. Um, can you also just talk a little bit further than while we're still on the subject of uh, why you personally chose to place this novel in this very specific time frame? Uh, I didn't grow up Christian, mm-hmm. um, but... I, I guess I fell in love with, from an early age, the uh, aesthetic accoutrement of, of Christmas time. Everything that some of the characters in the novel love, uh, like the music and mm-hmm. a Charlie Brown Christmas, and even goofy movies like Love Actually, uh, the, the decorations, the, the sing-song, jingle-jangle quality of, of Christmas time, the silly... Frank Sinatra aspect, all of that stuff, I'm, I love it. I actually, I find it really attractive, even as I know how silly it is. And so I suppose I, I wanted to set it at that time. And when I mentioned nostalgia, it was also a balm for me mm-hmm. because golly, by Christmas time here in Australia, it's hot and bright and people associate it more with barbecues than uh, chestnuts roasting on the open <laughs> fire. Okay, so then jumping right off of that and delving into Halloween then, um, I do want to talk about the horror aspects of this novel. And I mean, just in terms of genre literature, if you're a listener of the Weird Era podcast, you know this is my bread and butter. I love talking about it. Um, In reflecting on The Spirits Up after I was finished, I was almost wary to call it horror because it is most definitely a ghost story. Um, But there are these really, really deep set satirical elements that made me question really how far into horror this book can go. Um, At the same time, there are these really stark and horrifying and paralyzing moments when you hone in on, on the subject matter. Um, So the question here being, what is your relationship to horror as an author? Hmm. I hadn't thought of that, but I suppose the relationship I have with horror is a little bit like my association with Christmas (laughs) <laughs> where it, I associate it with um, with young adulthood, with my mm. early days of being a, a reader. Uh, I fell in love with horror as a young person, and it it probably is probably is the reason I love reading and writing so much. Mm. Uh, that said, I've never tried to write a 
as you say, a traditional horror novel. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I did want to, you know, use aspects of horror in this, but like you say, it, it wouldn't be if if you sold this, if you're hand selling this to your readers at the bookstore <laughs> saying, Here's a here's a great horror novel, <laughs> they might call you up later and say, I don't Maybe Alex, know. you didn't read that right. <laughs> so, so yeah, you're you're right. I I am I suppose dancing on both sides of it. Where you know I love aspects of horror, but uh, this probably does not qualify as a horror novel. That's for sure. I think it definitely it's a story falls. with ghosts in it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It definitely falls under ghosts. But then, like I said, you know, there there are these moments where there's you know red stains on the walls and dead Nazis haunting people and, you, you know, some of your worst um, qualities come to manifest. And I think those are really what drive the horror in this story. But I really do always love to ask authors, and, you know, like specifically through the month of October, I've been speaking to a lot of traditional horror authors and and talking about what their relationships are to it. So I felt it would be uh, wrong of me to not ask you the same thing. Oh, sure. Like you, Alex, I like being scared. And I certainly like, I love the novels where, where it, it does sort of dig at your deepest fears, the sort of things you've you worry about and think about mm-hmm. when you're falling asleep at night, and and so that's what I wanted to to use. And and then going back to the that original inspiration of what I think can be a a scary novel, a Christmas Carol can be pretty scary. And it mm-hmm. and the thing that's scary about it, I suppose, is who are you really? Uh, what have you done to people? And what does that yeah. mean? Uh, where are you going? What are the choices you're making, and how they affected others? And I think that is. Uh, when I reflect certainly on my own life, that's where horror lives in me probably. Mm. Um, also, I mean, just like an offhand question here. Uh, but one of the things and one of the threads uh, that I found when it comes to traditional horror authors is almost all of them have expressly said to me they were extremely fearful children. Um, is that a quality that you would say you also shared? Yeah, I was scared of the dark. <laughs> I was. Yeah, I, I definitely was. I, I did not like it. I I didn't like it when the lights turned out. I didn't like, and I uh, think, you know, I lived in a house that was noisy and strange. And uh, yeah, even, yeah, gosh, even the, I have a, I have a little daughter and we lived in France. Mm-hmm. And when she was one, she would see ghosts. <laughs> I mean, she's one, she's turning to and then turn two years old and we'd be having and we were in this living in basically a 17th century home and we'd be eating breakfast and she's not scared or anything she said there are those kids playing and actually she's a little frenchy at the time she said in french les enfants jouent là-bas and we'd ask her these questions about who who are they she would describe them it just gave me chills and i suppose that is probably the sort of thing where um yeah as a young person i i felt those feelings and i was uh worried that when I turned out the lights, things were happening and, and there something was going to come for me. So maybe that's a guilty conscience that is deep within me or something. I don't know. I still, you know, babies and animals can see ghosts. I think that's just a fact that we all need to deal with. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> um, so much of the spirits up is satire in the best way and again it's just so topical um for my listeners who have yet to read the book you know one of the main characters is literally named karen uh and even she has this brief passage where she's coming to terms with the quote-unquote weaponization of her name um even though i 
think she senses that she is a Karen, you know, wrought with white privilege, some form of wokeness, but also way too protective of her own status to realize she could be any part of a a greater problem. Um, How has the continued divide between class and race specifically in North America attributed to the satirical elements in the spirits up? Yeah, I think the the shock of of realization that a lot of middle class and upper middle class, and in this case, sort of new money people, I think it's it's been for a lot of folks psychologically difficult for them, and some some of them are defensive, some of them go off into into crazy town, and I yeah. think that we're seeing that politically, whole political movements are being formed in opposition to. Uh, this realization that that something is off, something is wrong, something's not fair, and Karen, she's an educated person who veers between both, as you as you say, and she does have some friends, and one of her friends, and I had fun writing this character, uh, is is one of those sort of you know left left wing racists, you know mm-hmm. that there's there's all kinds of categories now that we didn't really have before, and you know her having to deal with that, and actually. I started writing this novel and playing with this novel a before the pandemic first draft probably was before hmm. it started. So I had to, you know, I, in my, in my rewrite after, you know, your ugly first draft, you fold that in. And then her name was always Karen and the movement around Karen's which started small <laughs> and turned big happened in the middle of it. And, and I think I did, I did discuss with, um, with my, either my editor or, or my first reader agent friend, Martha should, is this too much now? And uh, it's just, that's who she is. Let's just deal with it. And actually, there are lots of Karens out there who just feel <laughs> rot in the middle of Karenness. And gosh, my name's Todd. So man, Todd is not a great name for this either. So I feel her pain. Todd, Todd is the worst. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, even you mentioned the her friend who is this kind of left-wing racist. I was very, very close and very, very tempted to just read that entire tirade that Melissa goes off on um, because it is so apt and it's so problematic. And she's coming from such a, you know, she thinks genuinely informed place. Um, but it's terrible. The things that she's saying are just, <laughs> are just low-key awful. Yeah, and I think we've all heard that, a version of that speech. And whether it's in media or uh, someone being interviewed by the by the CBC or one of our friends who's had too much to drink at a dinner party and there's just <laughs> silence after we don't know what to do with it. <laughs> I think we're in that funny place now. What would you say is attractive about satire when it comes to writing in regard to class commentary? Well, I suppose a little like we're we're talking about now the what I find most attractive about it is when when people are not aware mm-hmm. of the context they're in, or they've they've made really superficial judgments about it. They're wearing the right clothes. They're saying the the right things. They're driving the right vehicle. They're they're donating to the right cause, but at the same time, uh, they're they're hurting people. And I think that is what's playful about the novel. Uh, mm-hmm. Having real empathy for the I'm, that's. That's the downside of satire, and mm-hmm. I guess traditional satire as well. And I wouldn't, I would probably also say to someone, "Here's a here's a really satirical novel. Here's a satire." They might go, oh, "I don't, Alex. You said it was a satire, and it's <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of sincere." But you know, the satirical elements what attracts me to satire is is just that irony where 
you know, mm-hmm. people especially uh, would see themselves a little like Melissa does, as you mentioned, as maybe she's even woke. Maybe she even mm-hmm. thinks she is. Maybe she's reading every, she reads the New Yorker and she keeps track and she <laughs> donates to the right thing. Yet at the same time, all this stuff is happening. And I think our income inequality uh, that is mm-hmm. just roaring right now, I think is is really based in so much of that. And when people do have the capacity to to think about what would I truly have to do, mm-hmm. uh, they don't even go 10% in that direction. It's too much. Uh, and you can find a million reasons why we shouldn't, uh, mm-hmm. why we have to protect ourselves and our families and our wealth. And so I think the the moment uh, right now around uh, around income, around a reckoning with class and and history, uh, colonization, where we live, how we live, it's fun to use satire, uh, even if it at times is gentle, uh, because you do you do want to have some sympathy for people, but at the same time, these are these are the things we have to be discussing and thinking about, and uh, and for art to be able to do it is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I mean, some of my favorite art in the last little while has treaded in this zone, um, and, and so I'm happy to, to to play in that, and I'm honored to be able to do it with a novel. Do you think writing a novel that has these satirical elements um, in a post-2020 world is easier or more difficult than it would have been pre-pandemic or even further pre-Trump? Well, I suppose... It's tricky. I I feel like any human would, I suppose. I feel gross writing some of the things that I wrote in the novel. I was just trying to be honest about the things I've heard, uh, the people I know, uh, even even problems my family has has been through. Of course, I fictionalize it, and yeah. but the there is some raw thinking and feeling in the novel that I, well, that I novelized or fictionalized uh, from, from real life that I've noticed. And, and I myself, I'm, I'm, a, I'm one of those people. I'm a, I'm a deeply privileged person. I would sit in a very happy uh, wealth bracket. Mm-hmm. I've, I've done what I, I grew up poor and I'm okay now. And mm-hmm. I don't know what to do about it. And so writing a novel, I don't want it to, I don't want to say it's a cop out or anything, but I can explore these things and, and test them. So I think uh, in a way it's it's best and easiest for us all to just turn away, to turn it off, to live our lives, to um, to take pleasure in entertainments and and delicious food and and to give um, the thousands a year to charity mm-hmm. uh, or um, to buy offsets or to do whatever, whether it's whether it's climate oriented or income inequality or race or all the things that we can go after and try to fix uh, there are ways to buy um, to to buy our pain off mm-hmm. uh, but I'd rather scratch at it and <laughs> bleed a little bit and see what the hell that makes me feel so yeah I think it's as you say all of those um, all those questions you asked is it easier or is it harder in this era we're in it's probably both mm-hmm. I would hope that as you as people read the novel and this is what I think novels ought to do is you know you you question where you sit here, does this make you feel uncomfortable? What would you do in that scenario? And I think that's what we can be playful about as as writers and readers as well. Um, I don't know if I answered your question. 
No, <laughs> is I it mean, easier or harder? It's both, I guess. Listen, I'm never ever looking for a direct answer when <laughs> when we're asking these questions. You know, we're always this is always an explorative conversation um, for sure. So this next question, I I want to talk about it. I had kind of a difficult time formatting it um, because. I wanted to talk about um, pariahdom and social expulsion. And at the same time, th- those terms, I think, could possibly be the flip side or, you know, rather the same um, two sides of the same coin as as cancel culture, which is, you know, a loaded term completely. Um, But I wanted to ask it because each of these family members' reputation is kind of constantly at stake, either professionally or or personally. Um, And while they might not be cancelled in the ha-ha traditional sense, um, there is this looming threat over them at all times. Um, Would you agree with that assessment that, again, cancel culture as as a loaded term and social expulsion kind of fall on the same table i suppose and i think in the novel karen is most aware of it and poppy mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. the younger daughter in the family uh the other two are not oblivious but they care about different aspects of it the the thing that's interesting is uh, when we dig into our own family histories you know you can mm-hmm. find aspects of this the way that reputation and I don't like using the word brand in this scenario, but how do we fit in our communities? And yeah. uh, what is the story we tell about ourselves? What's true about it? What's not? What are we shameful about? Uh, how do we deal with it? How do we hide it? I think mm-hmm. most of us mm-hmm. hide it. And what's new about this moment is we can't anymore. It's really difficult. The, and what I, what I find super fascinating about what's happening now with social media and with, with people uh, interrogating our decisions and the words we say mm-hmm. is, yeah, you can, you can do something that could have a, could affect generations of of your family, a small thing that you could do, and I think that weighs heavily, especially on Karen, as she as she discovers what's really going on with her husband's business, for example, you know the the stuff that she had to reckon with as a child herself, mm-hmm. uh, uh, not to spoil things for the readers, but the she she had a big turn of fortune in her own young life. She went from one kind of very privileged girl into something else in her late teens. And then to see that happening again in her 40s, uh, it's it's really difficult for her. And, and I think she does start to see, okay, what happens to my kids and my kids' kids? And what does the name mean? Uh, how does this affect their future? Uh, does... Does the punishment fit the crime? All of these sorts of things that would keep her up at night. I think a lot of people are in that are in that spot, and it's it is making some of us pretty pretty cautious. Some of us are going in the other direction and just embracing it and mm-hmm. uh, trying to I don't know be a rebel news star. Uh, <laughs> others are others are just watching with with delight and fascination, and yeah. uh, so I, I think it's a really interesting interesting moment where. Um, we we are we're watching ourselves in an, in a new way mm-hmm. and what what i find reputation does is it shows how selfish we can be and and how and how our actions 
and our words now carry so much more than ever before. And putting that in the context of a novel is a lot of fun because you, you do want your characters to get themselves into huge trouble. <laughs> and it's bad for a writer to, to live out their fantasies in, in the pages. But you, know, you, do, you do explore how, and I did that with a, a novel set in Montreal, Toby, a man. That's what happens to him too. So this is something I've been thinking about for a while, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> if, yeah. you, if you absolutely mess up and uh, your reputation, you are just a different person. What do you do next? And I, that's one of the things that I find interesting whenever uh, a public figure is it is in this mess i just think what do they do next i've not heard from them in a while what are they thinking what are they feeling at home did they mean for this to happen uh are they are they defensive and angry and aggrieved about it do they hate people Mm -hmm. are they going to try to come back are they going to write an article in the new york times book review and try to explain (laughs) it all (laughs) you know all of these things that have that people try to do uh it's so interesting Mm -hmm. uh, right now yeah uh, so, like I said at the top of the interview, you know, so many current events dictated uh, how and where the story is going in the spirits up, and uh, they really are the driving context between kind of nearly everything that's going on. Um, the climate crisis is also front and center for this, as Benedict's machine, the Kutisi Box, a compact, environmentally friendly, stylish nuclear reactor, could eliminate the need for coal and oil power on a global scale. Um, we're pretty quick to find out that, unfortunately, Kutisi and Benedict may be promising more than they deliver. Um, Elizabeth Holmes did something very similar with the company Theranos around 2014, where she promised uh, that she had succeeded in creating a new blood testing technology that was heavily, heavily uh, financially invested in, only to be forced to reveal that this technology did not exist. Um, how much of this high-profile event contributed to or helped um, develop Benedict's story, if at all. Oh, Theranos and other uh, and other companies like that, other stories that we have, uh, totally informed it. I mean, I, I get to work with, and I certainly um, in my previous role in business dealt with this all the time. Where I think venture capital, especially, uh, mm-hmm. it's it's pushing entrepreneurs to to create a vision, a dream to tell a story and uh, not necessarily to work, to worry about customers, uh, not necessarily to work about customer acquisition. Whether this thing actually works doesn't really matter. Let's build up that valuation. Uh, Let's make as much as we can, as quickly as we can. Let's get multiples on our investments. The entire system is, is pushing this and Benedict finds himself in that. I love, I love, love, love financial malfeasance. I, I, (laughs) I love Ponzi schemes. I, I adored keeping track of, of Theranos. I remember reading the New Yorker article uh, that I think Ken Oletta originally wrote about Theranos. Yeah. And just saying, I, I can't believe she, she's making magic. And toward the end, he just had a little bit of doubt in there. And I remember thinking, oh, if this is fake, it'll be the coolest <laughs> thing in the world. I mean, as terrible as it, as it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when, when, something, when something blows up like that, it is absolutely fascinating and Mm so i guess when you're writing a novel especially a contemporary one i was selfish and what are my obsessions you mentioned horror christmas uh financial (laughs) malfeasance family dynamics (laughs) social media cancel culture all of these things that i think are income inequality all these things that that i think about all the time uh i wanted to you know put a coherent fun entertaining story around it and uh that the one you just mentioned a climate and then be the broken system of uh, of venture capital and 
and technology, especially in North America. Uh, these are two things that I think about a lot. And um, I guess a follow-up question to this would be, do you feel sympathy for people like Benedict and Elizabeth Holmes? Um, I think at least Benedict seems to have some genuinely good-hearted motivations. Uh, another way of asking would be, do you think uh, corporate and capitalist greed will always overshadow genuine good intentions of an individual? Yeah, I, I have sympathy for everyone in the novel, that's for sure. I I see their humanity and I wanted to mm-hmm. build it up and and explore how they respond to this. And, you know, they're, 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 there's a lot, as you, as you note, there's a lot in the book that is not honorable uh, and that is graceless and terrible. But I understand everything that they all do. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a part of me, everything that happens in that. So I, I understand how you'd be trapped how you'd feel like, uh, I can get out of this, I can get out of this, I can get out of this, I can fix it, I can fix it, I can fix it, which is a part of that privilege you talked about earlier. Yeah. If, you, if you grow up being, if everyone tells you you're a genius, if everyone tells you you can do it, if everyone tells you you're going to be rich and famous and you're going to solve all these problems, you, you believe it. Mm-hmm. And then when it becomes suddenly untrue, you'll do anything to make it true. And I, I feel like I know people like that. Uh, mm. There's an aspect of me that I, I absolutely see in that. I've been in that situation, certainly as an entrepreneur, where I have just said something and I've promised something to someone that mm. I do not know if I can actually deliver. And you walk out of the room shaking and you realize, oh my God, I, I have to change everything really fast. <laughs> yeah. And these people will eat me alive if I don't get it done. <laughs> and I, I just, I kind of, I, I love that feeling. And, and I think a lot of people put themselves in that situation in small and big ways. And uh, it is a, it is a part of our culture and our time. Mm-hmm. So do you feel sympathy for Elizabeth Holmes? <laughs> uh, well, that's a tough one, isn't it? It, <laughs> it is. I I try to, I, I do try to. And if I didn't uh, either sympathize or empathize or understand her, hum- what's going on inside her, I don't think I'd be as interested so mm. in some sense, I must see myself in her. Uh, mm. You know, I, I can imagine feeling trapped. Uh, what's the right word for it? You know, sim- there's certainly nothing. It's difficult to find anything honorable in the way she's been presented. But I'm mm-hmm. keeping track of the trial and I'm interested to see what happens. Uh, I mean, I think sociopathy is not terribly interesting in novels because it, it does take you farther away, farther yeah. and farther away from empathy and sympathy. Yeah. And so you're you're almost dealing with robotic humans, mm-hmm. and they're they're not as interesting uh, to me. It's almost like the when the when the evildoer, uh, when when the devil, when the monster, uh, whatever evil force in the novel just turns out to be evil for the sake of evil. There's nothing there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. find yeah. I mean, I love I love the Harry Potter novels, and I I remember feeling so sad at the end that I don't understand Voldemort's intentions. <laughs> what's he, what's Voldemort trying to do? I, what I is sort driving of got this Darth man? Vader. <laughs> yeah, so what, why are you doing these things? Uh, but, you know, when, when I can understand, you know, feel some sympathy for the, um, uh, for whoever it is our heroes are fighting against, I, I, I find it more interesting. So, yeah, I guess I want to, I, I want to, I want to find the humanity in Elizabeth Holmes. 
Yeah, I mean, and, no, and I only ask and I, I go on about it because it, it really did, you know, reading the book really made me think of Theranos and this whole situation. And it it definitely made me think of her in a potentially different way. You know, I don't know her personally, obviously, I'm not going to, um, but just, you know, Benedict's story and this whole kind of corporate manipulation that's happening around him to push him to lie to investors continuously and and pitch this amazing, amazing pitch. It really just made me think like, huh, maybe maybe Elizabeth Holmes isn't actually a super villain. <laughs> this is interesting now. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah I, and I yeah that's that's the part where you you try to find their humanity because there's a certain point where they go left when they could have gone right and they just mm-hmm. can't go back yeah. and you, know, you can you can imagine there has to be that reckoning uh, or not or not <laughs> I mean that's the, or not you just push and push and push and we've seen all kinds of examples I think and there are there are lots of theranoses out there mm-hmm. that are just dangling you know there there is no business model there there's just hype. <laughs> Yeah. And they're just waiting to blow up, and uh, we're going we're going to see a whole bunch of those, I think, in the next decade or so. Mm. That said, you know, capital will will support itself. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> and no one wants these things to blow up. <laughs> we'll do anything to keep them afloat. And so, yeah, it is a super fascinating machine. Yeah. Um. Totally going left field now. Um, can you talk a little bit about how religion is utilized in the spirits up uh, for our listeners? You know, Benedict in particular is reflecting a lot in this period uh, of time about prayer and belief and religious identity. Um, how is belief, and I would say that belief is one of the the major themes in the spirits up, um, how is belief as a theory both inspiring and potentially useless? Yes, <laughs> yeah, <that's, laughs> I think that's that's what that's what he lives with. I think, and and all the characters sort of live with. We desperately want to believe, but it's harder and harder to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how I've tried to use even the the warmth and uh, the jolly aspects of Christmas. Mm. And we want it. We are chasing it. We're chasing that feeling, and we're trying to construct that feeling. Uh, but we almost never get there. And and Benedict, who grew up in a deeply religious family with parents who were born again, he himself could never reach it. He wanted to for them and for himself. He wanted to, so desperately to believe. And then he takes that, uh, that instinct, uh, that lack of belief or um, the pretending that maybe he saw his parents and others uh, engaging in, and he takes it into his business life. And, mm-hmm. and then he has to he has to use it with his family. Mm-hmm. What's happening with the ghosts? Is this even possible? When there's a, a, a shattering, I suppose, of all your expectations, where do you go now? Mm-hmm. Uh, if, you're, if you're not a believer, if you don't have the consolation of belief and religion, uh, which we had for so long as, as humans, where do we, where do we go? Mm-hmm. And you know, we, we do go into, we go into finance and we go into business and we go into social media and we go into all the things that we, uh, these characters get engaged in. So I lo- I like what exploring what the the void in our you know current world mm. is doing for us and I think a lot of the a lot of conspiracy nonsense that we see it, it does mm. seem to follow when you when you look at these well constructed conspiracies they they follow the arc of of a religion and I'm not surprised by that at all. Mm-hmm. 
Um, as the spirit uh, progresses, we we start to get more and more insight from Poppy, uh, one of Benedict and Karen's teenage daughters. This was like a welcome surprise to me because it really meant that we're going to be getting multiple points of view from within this family dynamic and what's happening to kind of everybody. Uh, Poppy is a middle schooler dealing with a secret eating disorder and her own struggles with teenage social hierarchies. Um, why did you feel it was important to include and explore her young struggles and her point of view in the spirits up? Well, I suppose everything we've been talking about, we've mostly talked about uh, what this looks like from the point of view of, uh, of people in their 40s trying to reckon with modern mm-hmm. life. Uh, I wanted, I'm fascinated by what young people are living through and mm-hmm. the way that they would understand what's going on, uh, she, the way she understands what's going on between her parents romantically. Uh, she is like most kids are at this age, interested in status, as you as you noted. Uh, how does she fit into her own school? What does her name mean? Uh, what are kids going to say about her? What are they currently saying about her? She feels all of that pain, and she actually is a is an empathy machine herself. She she feels her her dad's and her dad's pain and her mom's pain. So it was just another another view on it, another eye, I suppose. And I could, I didn't, I don't want to sound callous. I could use Poppy as, I suppose, um, a more a more innocent view, uh, a more mm-hmm. human or uncorrupted view of what's actually happening all around her. You know, even even the aspect of climate. Uh, I, I find my own daughters, my, my books, my bound copies of the, my books just arrived yesterday and I was so delighted to see them. <laughs> and my, my daughters grabbed them. They're, they're the same age actually right now as as the daughters in the book. And so they're mad at me about that. (laughs) They're mad at me, but I, uh, everyone's going to think it's us. No, no, they're, they're not you at all, (laughs) but they, uh, I, I do talk to them a lot and it's weird to have a a writer dad because Mm. I do probably treat them, uh, like interview subjects a lot (laughs) about how they feel about things and what's happening at school and, and what teachers are saying. And their teenagers are so sophisticated and mm-hmm. so interesting right now, and they're living through such an awful time for for them being targeted the way they are, yeah. And forming their own their own views uh, is is probably harder than ever. And and everything we talked about earlier, when everyone's watching everything you do and say, it's really difficult when you're 13 or 15 years old, yeah. uh, where you're kind of in the mistaking mistake making business, which I think is a quotation from the book. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I think having their their outlook, especially Poppy's outlook, was uh, was a lot of fun, and it allowed me certainly to to get at uh, maybe maybe the the joy and uh, innocence of of Christmas through a kid who's not terribly joyful mm-hmm. and not terribly innocent. Yeah, no, I mean um, it's funny also that you mentioned. Um... You know, kids and teenagers, of course, there's this stress on, you know, you're in the business of mistake making. Uh, what you do and say might be used against you. And I mean, I had this quotation actually pulled um, just for myself that, um, you know, Poppy really does seem like the voice of reason through throughout the novel. But just one quote, I don't even have a question about this. I'm literally just bringing it up. Um, one of the quotes that she says terrified me. And I think it is just so reflective of teenage life. And it was, uh, Poppy did not have an account, but when the pandemic was really bad, she looked on her mom's Twitter at what the American president had said. And it gave her such a thrill to know she could do or say anything as long as she had money. 
Yeah. <laughs> that's it. That's it. No, literally, it is, I just... <laughs> it is such a strange... That's it. That's a, such a strange time to be alive. And uh, that is not exactly a quotation out of my children's mouths, but I can see them uh, just... Are you... You're allowed to do that? Yeah, it's just a... No, but... <laughs> yeah, no, but. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, we're, we're on the last question. Um, I kind of love that modernity has really changed uh, the traditional or, you know, historical ghost story. Um, when contemporary fiction introduces ghosts, it's, it, it's becoming more and more um, this air of unresolved trauma surrounding it. You know, Benedict's ghost, for example, and in particular is presented as this physical manifestation as this physical manifestation of his own deceit. Um, there's less this narrative where, you know, a person who dies carries their unresolved trauma into ghosthood, and instead the living are subjected to hauntings due to their own unresolved trauma and terror. Um, so my last question on this interview is, Todd, do you believe in ghosts? I do. I tend to believe in everything. <laughs> and that that is just something that I've... Uh, maybe I'm doomed by, but it's really difficult for me. If I if I can't prove a thing doesn't exist, I think, well, maybe maybe it exists. It's, it's probably my uh, attitude toward <laughs> toward religion, uh, ghosts, and and certainly you know things like UFOs and all all of that. Uh, and mm. so maybe it's maybe it's requisite to, for a novelist to believe in things or at least to be open to things. I'm open to everything, I suppose. So I have to say yes. I think I do believe in ghosts. I I do feel that we have. I love writing novels uh, because it does allow you to really explore the limits mm. of, of humanity. But at the same time, I think we know 1% of 1% of 1% of what's really happening. Mm -hmm. uh, our, our perception, our understanding of, of the universe is rather limited. So uh, it's pretty arrogant to say, no, there are no ghosts. <laughs> And and like I said earlier, my daughter saw ghosts. So she, <laughs> yeah, she was, I mean, once you she said was pretty that, sincere I was like... about it. <laughs> <laughs> there they are playing. She talked about them all the time. It scared the shit out of me. <laughs> oh man. Okay. Well, Todd, thank you so so much for joining me today. This was such a fun uh, a fun conversation. We hit everything that I wanted to talk about with you. Um, whenever. You you do leave Australia, come to Montreal, and uh, you know we'll we'll grab a drink and we'll chat about uh, chat about our own hauntings. Oh, that would be great, Alex. I'll I'll definitely owe you one. I love your bookstore, and I'm looking forward to getting back to Canada and Montreal in particular. Amazing, amazing. Thanks, thanks, listeners. <laughs>